If you would, please take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 21. Luke chapter 21. While you're doing that, I would remind you of Isaiah 66.2, which says that the heart, the soul that's pleasing to God, that is acceptable to him, is the one that is contrite. And the qualifier of that contrition is that that soul trembles at the word of God. Trembles at the word of God. And so our privilege is to come together and hear the word of God not only preached but read aloud. And we do this as the saints as God's covenant people. So I would remind you that God's word, as you will find out today, is creating the world that we exist in, and it's creating that world we exist in even at this very moment. So let us tremble at God's word, beginning in verse 5 of Luke chapter 21. It reads, And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, Teacher, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, See that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified. For these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, and in various places famines and pestilences. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair on your head will perish. By your endurance you will gain your lives." But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart, and let not those who are out in the country enter it. For these are the days of vengeance, to fulfill all that is written. Alas for women who are pregnant, and for those who are nursing infants in those days. For there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people." They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars, and on the earth distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. And he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Here ends the reading of God's word. And if you would, please open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6. you're visiting us this morning, um, I want to welcome you on behalf of everyone else in this room who calls Pacific home, Hope, their home. We're pleased to have you. I'd love to meet with you. If you could stop by and just say hello after service, I'd appreciate it. And don't rush out. We encourage you to stay with us and uh, have some coffee or some tea or along with the fellowship. Amen, Pacific Hope Church? Yeah, that's right. 
All right, now we move in the worship service to the preaching of the Word of God. And I'm going to read this morning verses 1 through 8 of Revelation chapter 6. And then we'll look, over, we'll look at it in detail for the next hour. The word of the Lord reads, Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow. And a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse. And its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, and with famine, and with pestilence, and by wild beasts of the earth. And this ends the reading of the word of God. Now, beloved, as we look at this chapter, we must understand this chapter in flow of the entire narrative that takes us back to chapter 4. Where Almighty God is portrayed in his transcendent glory, surrounded by angelic force. John is called up to take on this vision. But John doesn't intrinsically see God with optic vision. But rather he sees what God is like. He sees what heaven is like. And what John is given vision of is the glory that surrounds the throne of the Almighty. All of which is the setting for the stage of the drama that takes place in chapter 5, which we looked at last week. Who, that is, the one that sits on the throne, holds in his right hand a scroll, which bears all of God's judgments, all of his purposes in salvation and wrath. Now, unless the seals of that scroll are split open by a worthy heir, all that John knows to be true about God is a contradiction. The call went out throughout the universe. No one was found worthy. So John wept loudly until one of the elders said, Weep no more. Behold the lion of the tribe of Judah, who, as you know, when John looked, did not appear to be as a lion, but appeared to be a lamb as though it had been slaughtered. The one who reigns as king. The one who is king, who was slaughtered. He comes out not from outside the throne, not from outside of the 24 elders, not from outside of the four living creatures, but from the inside, from the throne itself, for he is one with God. He comes out to which all of heaven breaks loose with praise. Worthy are you to take the scroll. The worthy one. And that vision, beloved, is a prerequisite for understanding the rest of the book of the revelation of Jesus Christ. Chapter 4 and chapter 5. So now, the worthy one, the lion of the tribe of Judah, 
who appeared as a, as a lamb as though it had been slaughtered, he is worthy to take the scroll. He's now taken the scroll, and he begins to break open each one of the seven seals and enact the content of that scroll in judgment and in blessing upon the earth. Now, what John probably desired to know was the when and the how content of the scroll. What he's about to see, however, is not when and how the content of the scroll will reveal itself, but rather what he's going to see is the why of the seven-sealed scroll. In the Olivet Discourse, from which Aaron read this morning, as the, desi- the disciples of the Lord Jesus were looking at the beauty of the temple and its surrounding buildings, Jesus stands and he says to them, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. That was inconceivable, beloved, in the, in the mind of a Jew. <laughs> The Gospel of Mark tells us that Peter, James, and John, our beloved John, the one who's partaking of this vision, came privately to the Lord and they asked, Lord, when will these things be? They wanted to know the details of the calamities for which Jesus portrayed here, when it would happen and how it would occur. But Jesus answered, There will be, he said, wars. There will be, he said, rumors of wars. There will be earthquakes. There will be famines, but do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. These are but the beginning of birth pains, Jesus said. So these signs are not actually signs of the ultimate end, beloved. But these signs are what will characterize life on earth between the first and second comings of the Lord Jesus Christ, known as the last days. It was the last days then. It is the last days now. For instance, John, same John, in 1 John chapter 2 writes, verse 18, children, it is the last what? hour, not just the last day, it's the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know it is the last hour. Is this the last hour? Was it the last hour? Was it the last day? Is this the last day? Is this the last hour? Or is this not the last day and the last hour? That's what we must ask ourselves this morning. In Acts chapter 1, before the Lord's ascension, his bodily ascension, they asked, will you, Lord, at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Jesus answered with clarity, it is not for you to know times and seasons. It is not for you to know the when and the how. He redirects their attention from times and seasons to purposes and power. Acts 1.8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Why? Because me, I, the king, have established my kingdom. All power and authority has been given to me in heaven above and earth below. So therefore, you don't worry about the when and the how. You go bear witness of me. As my kingdom and as my what? Priests. Revelation 1. Because you are my kingdom and you are my priests, go therefore and make disciples in the midst of everything that is about to unfold. Jesus now begins to open this seven-sealed scroll, revealing for us the instruments of temporal judgment that are brought upon the world that rejects him. Are you with me this morning, beloved? So these writers symbolize the kinds of suffering 
that Jesus sends upon the earth is a judgment for a world that rejects him, that rejects his messiahship, that that rejects his person and his power, characterizing the time between his first and second comings. A precursor to his final and eternal judgment of all those that are his enemies. That's what we're about to see. These calamities are not a mere coincidence, beloved. These are not accidents. These things don't just mysteriously occur in life. Hurricanes, holocaust, war, those things just don't happen. The calamities depicted in the remainder of the book of Revelation are sent forth by the Lord himself. They come as a result of the lion who is the lamb, who who alone is worthy to break open this seven-sealed document and implement its content upon the world. Only he can do it. No one else does it. He does it. Only he can do it. And what this does is it it brings forth a precursor to final judgment. You must repent or perish if one is not in Christ. Because you will die somehow, some way. You know, we, we often hear people speak out often, most often out of their ignorance, when they say, you know, God of the Old Testament is violent and wrathful, whereas the God of the New Testament is merciful and kind. You ever heard people say that? Don't ever say that. You know, the Old Testament reveals more of God's wrath, whereas the New Testament reveals more of God's love. Wrong. You are dead wrong if you believe that. That assessment is only partially true. The wrath of God is in no way limited to the Old Testament any more than the love and mercy of God is confined to the new, beloved. As a matter of fact, what we find in the New Testament is an an increase of both God's love and his wrath. Make no mistake about that. This is a message on the wrath of God this morning, beloved. That's exactly what's in the text. Be grateful that you're covered by the blood of the Lamb. Forever grateful, if indeed you're covered by the blood of the Lamb. If you're not, tremble, I pray, unto repentance this morning. Now, when we get to the New Testament, we see the greatest expression of God's love known to man. And that is that Jesus became a man. That God came to earth in the person of Jesus Christ, appearing as a bondservant, coming to lay down his life as a sacrifice in the stead of sinners like me. But at the same time within the New Testament, we are brought face to face, beloved, with the greatest and highest expression of both God's hate and wrath. And that is Jesus who went to the cross to bear that wrath. Nothing compares to that. And in addition to that wrath, the one who actually controls the distribution of the content of this seven-sealed scroll, both in judgment and blessing, is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So in his death, burial, and resurrection, not only does Jesus have the right to grant eternal life, but also holds the right to execute condemnation, both in an earthly temporal sense and an eternal sense. Jesus said in John 5, verse 21, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one. Did you get that, beloved? The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Do we have a picture of Jesus that is clear this morning, beloved? So here now, the very fulfillment of Daniel chapter 7, verse 14, the one who is given dominion and glory and a kingdom reveals for us an aspect of his sovereign reign that most Christians either don't understand or quite simply refuse to accept. 
Question. If the lion who appeared as a lamb has triumphed, and he has, victor, and if he now reigns, which he does, why does the world continue in violence, pain, and suffering? He rules. All power and authority has been given to me in heaven above and earth below. It's his. The scepter's his. He rules. He reigns. Now, the answer to that question, beloved, which may re- many refuse to accept who profess Jesus Christ, is because at this very moment, it is the lion who appeared as the lamb who is executing this kind of judgment upon the world now. As we shall see. Do you picture Jesus in that manner? Be thankful you're covered by the blood of the lamb. If indeed you're covered by the blood of the lamb. Rejoice. Jesus now dispatches the four horsemen of the apocalypse. I've entitled the message, The Four Horsemen of the Last Days. The time between the first and second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice he opens the first seal. We'll call this horseman conquest. Now these four um, horsemen are reminiscent of the horses that are pulling chariots in Zechariah chapter 6. Now their role there was to patrol the whole earth. The role of these four horsemen is to judge the whole earth. As instructed and as empowered by the lion who is the lamb. First horseman, conquest, verse one. Now I watched when the lamb opened one of the seven seals and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, come. And I looked and behold a white horse and its rider had a bow and a crown was given to him and he came out conquering and to conquer. Now, the the opening of these verses, beloved, in these first seals, they tell of a hearkening command as one of the elders from around the throne says, come. And that word is frequently used of God throughout the book of Revelation to either bring forth judgment or salvation. So here John sees a white horse whose rider has a crown and he has a bow. The horse in its color will appear first in each one of the first four here, followed by its rider and then the significance of each rider, their purpose. First horse, he came out conquering so that he might conquer. Bow represents military power, beloved. Sent to release disaster upon the earth. In the Old Testament, the horse is used as an emblem of war. In the ancient world, the white horse resembled military conquest, invasion, takeover. So this emphasizes his relentless pursuit of conquering this horseman, this white horse. Now, some identify this rider as Jesus because they, they flip forward to Revelation chapter 19 and they, say Je- they see Jesus coming on a white horse. And that's the only similarity is that he's in a white horse. But this rider here has a bow. Jesus has a sword. This, this rider has a crown, a wreath, a victor's wreath that you would receive if you want to race in the Olympic Games. Jesus has many diadems. An angel calls forth with the command, come, and this horse and horseman respond. That is not a command that an angel would give to the Lord Jesus Christ. Can I get an amen on that? So it's not Jesus who has made the recipient of power here to conquer. It's not Jesus that's given the power to conquer. It's Jesus who, who delegates the authority to conquer. He gives the power. Jesus is on the throne. So rather than identifying this writer as Jesus conquering with the gospel, as it's been interpreted by some, this writer symbolizes one form of earthly calamity and judgment, which is war, as you know war. As you know war when you turn on CNN, as they knew war in 67 AD. As they knew war to follow 67 to 70 AD. 
as we know war in both world wars. And so on throughout time. So one who goes forth on a white horse conquering and to conquer is imagery of fighting, of battle, of conquest, of invasion, of takeover and defeat. That's what this is. Real war upon the earth. Now, these four, these four riders together function as a quartet symbolizing des- desolation that Jesus himself inflicts upon the earth as prescribed in this seven-sealed scroll that the Father held in his right hand and Jesus took from his hand and now begins to open these seals. So this then is the relentless human desire for power, for control, for dominion that continues between the first and second comings of the Lord Jesus Christ, all of which are devised and delegated by the lion who appeared as a lamb, the worthy one to open the scroll. This is war on earth. Amen? Next writer, bloodshed. Verse three. When he opened the second scroll, I heard the second living creature say, come, and out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that man should slay one another and he was given a great sword. Notice the rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that man should slay one another. So to that end, men might slay. That's a strong word. The same word is used of Jesus back in chapter uh, 5, verse 9, where it says, you are worthy to take the scroll for you were slain, meaning slaughtered. This is not death that occurs in a battlefield. This is violent murder by the hand of one to another. A father, perhaps, to a son. A man, perhaps, to his brother. Jesus said also in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew, uh, Mark 13, brother will betray brother to death. A father his child. Children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. Now notice here the passive tense. Verse 4, he was permitted. Verse 2, a crown was given. Verse 8, they were given authority. From who? From the Lamb. This here, this bloodshed, this is civil unrest. This is invasion from within, where the destructive instinct of fallen humanity comes out as Christ judges by way of lifting, beloved, his hand of restraint from the evil of men. You know, like in Romans 1, where God turns sinners over to themselves, and when he finally turns them over to a depraved mind, that kind of evil manifests itself in all kinds of wicked forms. Just read the last few verses of Romans 1. He lifts his hand of restraint. This is reminiscent of Isaiah 19, verse 2. I told you to understand Revelation, you have to constantly be going back to the Old Testament. Isaiah 19, verse 2, it says, I, God, will set Egyptians against Egyptians. Everyone will fight against his brother, everyone against his neighbor, city against city, kingdom against kingdom. Anytime there's peace on earth, it's only because there is some kind of restraint from Almighty God. Remove the restraint, all hell breaks loose. Death occurs. I will, God said, set man against man. When God comes in judgment, he takes peace from the earth. So the ordained mission of this horseman is to remove that peace. To remove peace, he's given delegated authority from the lamb so as to turn people's destructive instincts upon one another. You see this every day. You see this on the news. We've seen this throughout time. Mind you, beloved, this is only preliminary judgment that is set against the inhabitants of the earth. And when we read that phrase in the Revelation, inhabitants of the earth, that is the context of those that are the enemies of God, those who oppose Christ and his kingdom children. This rider was permitted, notice, a great sword, meaning great in extent, worldwide, if you will. A great sword. Now, 
as we read the Revelation, beloved, this is not for us to make an attempt at defining some specific war or an exact time in history that men slaughter one another more than at other times. Okay? The book of Revelation is not meant to be formatted in chronological order. We see seven pictures of redemptive history from the first and second comings of Christ in seven replays, if you will. Seeing the same football game from seven different perspectives. One view from the end zone, one from the 50-yard line, one from the field, one from the blimp of the same thing using apocalyptic language to depict what's going on here. So it's not for us to figure out you know, where we fit in with, within the drama, but rather to know that these things have been occurring, they are occurring, and they will, <clears throat> excuse me, characterize life until Jesus Christ returns. There will be times for which these things will be intensified. Greater wars, much more death, times in which men seem to be just going off the handle, killing one another. Guys rolling into schools and killing kids. Crazy things like this throughout time. But at other times, it seems to level off. In between the first and second comings of Jesus Christ. So now as Jesus opens the seals, these riders go forth, and they have to go forth because he commands them to go forth. First, he inflicts war on the earth by way of the white horse. The second horse, symbolizing bloodshed by way of murder and slaughter of man by man. Notice the third horse, famine. Verse 5, when he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, again, come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures. Hmm, who's in the midst of the four living creatures? Think about that for a moment. And the voice from amidst of the living creature said, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius. Do not harm the oil and wine. So what we see symbolized here, beloved, is economic hardship. Economic hardship. These, pairs, these pair of scales do not symbolize judgment here in this context. This isn't like what you see at the courthouse with Lady Justice with a sword at her side and a blindfold on holding a pair of scales. But this scale represents measurement. Measurement. When famine would strike a land, the scales would be brought out in order to provide a precise measurement in order to ration food on a daily basis. And in the Old Testament, measuring scales were used metaphorically as an image of famine. Again, we cite the Old Testament, Ezekiel 4. When the Lord spoke of the siege that would come upon Jerusalem, he says to Ezekiel, I will break the supply of bread in Jerusalem. They shall eat bread by weight and with anxiety. Having to stand in line behind the scales to receive your portion of food for the day would cause anxiety, beloved. And they shall drink water by measure and in dismay. I will do to this that they may lack bread and water. I will do this as they may lack bread and water and look at one another in dismay and rot away because of their punishment. In other words, famine will overcome the people within that city. It's the hand of God. Now, in the first century, beloved, the dietary staples of life were bread, oil, and wine. In Asia Minor, which, again, who were the original recipients of this letter... The book of Revelation is an epistle, and the book of Revelation will not mean to us what it never meant to them. That's a principle of rightly interpreting the book of Revelation. So here in this region, what was plentiful in that day and in that time were olive groves and vineyards. When it came to grain, in Asia Minor, it had to be imported. The voice of one comes and begins to cry out from amidst the throne, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius. 
This is where the lamb was standing in chapter 5, verse 6. So this must be the voice of the lamb. Amen? Now, grain in this day was the least expensive but most essential to sustain life. And the usual price for a quart of grain in this day was one-eighth of a denarius. A day's wage for a man was a denarius. So here you have an 800% rate of inflated increase here for a ration of food for one day. So here now a man would go to work, receive his denarius, and it would cost him a denarius just to work for one day. Enough food for one man. So what about the man's family? Well, for the same price, you could purchase three quarts of the less nutritious barley also for a denarius. This would feed three people for one day. So in the conditions of war, which inevitably affect trade, transportation, and any kind of business enterprise, importing and exporting of goods becomes much more complicated during the time of war, which eventually leads to famine. We see in verse 8. Or because of major drought, whatever the means... The result is famine, economic hardship. So then, as the first horseman was released, who brings about war, he's followed by this red horse of much bloodshed, which leads to great famine, great want, making the simple things in in life hard to come by, producing inflation, hardship. So however these tragedies manifest themselves here, whether they're drought, whether it's war, the ultimate source behind it all is, beloved, the judgment of the Lamb. The judgment of Jesus Christ upon the earth. But this judgment, again, is not all-inclusive. This is not comprehensive final judgment. This is only a picture of final judgment. There's still food, right? It's expensive, but it's still available. The voice that speaks from amidst the four living creatures also says, notice, do not harm the oil or the wine. So although the judgment of Christ affects the world uh, in many ways throughout redemptive history between the first and second comings of Jesus Christ, it is still at this point not final and all-consuming, but it will be. It will be. where people will perish forever. What are you looking for as a Christian? Are you looking for some antichrist somewhere? Or are you looking for the glorious return of Jesus Christ? Because that's all that's left to happen, beloved. He's coming in glory. There'll be a full consummation of the kingdom and a full consummation of his judgment. So we move then from war to bloodshed to famine, which inevitably leads to death, followed by Hades. Again, the context, unbelieving world. Notice the fourth horseman, death. These are the only one actually given a name, by the way. Verse 7, when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, come, and I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And its rider's name was death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of, fourth of the earth to kill with sword, with famine, with pestilence, and by wild beasts of the earth. Now, when John describes this, the fourth horseman, he uses a word that translates the color green from where we get our English word chlorine. Chloros. Here, the description for green is not the beautiful plants that you see when you drove in this morning. Are they not beautiful? You got this nice Santa Ana and the sun shining in the morning. It just makes everything pop. Beautiful. Isn't it beautiful? It's so beautiful. I go for walks during the week, and as I pray for you guys, I pray for the body. I thank the Lord just for this building and the beauty that surrounds it. A representation of the Lord Jesus Christ for whom we gather to worship. It's not that kind of green. <laughs> this is a sick kind of green. This is a, 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 an ashen kind of green. This is a pale kind of green. This is a death kind of green. This is the color of a corpse. You. 
where a dead body no longer obtains this color of life, flush, redden tones of brown. That's life. Not pale green. So the pale horse here symbolizes the effect of the first three horses. Notice, where there's war, there's death. Where you have envy and hatred and pride and jealousy, there's murder, there's bloodshed. Where there's war, you'll have famine. Where you have famine, you have economic upheaval. Mass inflation. All those things inevitably lead to death. And wherever death strikes for the unbeliever, Hades follows. Are you thankful you're covered by the lamb? Because you won't see death. You get it? You will not see death. To be absent from the body, you will be present with the Lord, beloved. Not for the unbeliever. Death and Hades symbolize termination of life and existence apart from God. Oh, they face a part of God, all right, but it's only his wrath. It's not his love. It's not his grace. It's not his mercy. That's what hell is, to face the eternal wrath of Jesus. Revelation 14, there he is in his wrath, Jesus in hell, outpouring wrath. So, Also, again, we see this limitation here of this horse. Here's God and his grace. They were given authority only over one-fourth of the earth, notice, to kill with sword and famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. So boundaries are set by the king who sits on the throne. Limitations are set forth by the one who opens the scroll, not only to dictate but to implement its content. So these four categories of death here are an echoing reality of God's judgment upon his enemies that we read all throughout the Old Testament, right here in the New. Now, wild beasts probably seem you know, strange to us, but in this region and in this time where you have war and you have famine, wild beasts come out. They're drawn out. Listen to Ezekiel 14. For thus says the Lord God, Yahweh, Almighty God, how much more when I send upon Jerusalem my four disastrous acts of judgment, sword, famine, wild beast, and pestilence. This is judgment, beloved, inflicted upon those who persist in being God's enemies. Do you rejoice in being covered by the the blood of the Lamb? He uses the same language in judgment for those who persist in idolatry. Deuteronomy 32, verse 23. I will heap disasters upon them. I will spend my arrows on them. They shall be wasted with hunger and devoured by plague and poisonous pestilence. I will send the teeth of beasts against them with the venom of things that crawl in the dust. That is exactly what we see here, beloved, in Revelation chapter 6 with the opening of the first four seals of this scroll. You see, death, beloved, death by whatever means can be an expression of God's judgment on his enemies. It doesn't matter how you die. You die without Christ, you will perish, as we will see in a little bit. That's why we've got to preach the gospel. We, we gather together because we've been delivered from Death. Delivered from Hades, delivered by the blood of the Lamb, covered, made righteous. You are positionally righteous in the Lord Jesus Christ. You are his kingdom. You are his priests. Your citizenship? Heaven, the presence of the Almighty. Who holds the keys to death in Hades? Revelation has already told us that. It's Jesus Christ, none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. But yet he has limitations on this death and disease. Only one quarter of the earth is permitted to be overtaken. Now, these are the four horsemen of the apocalypse, beloved. These are the four horsemen of these, the last days, released upon the earth, carried out by the one who is worthy to take the scroll, to open it and implement the contents therein. It is Jesus Christ. Question, when do these things occur? Is this referring to some brief seven-year period of time at the end of history? Most of us were taught that. 
No, it's not. The glorified vision of Jesus in heaven, beloved, who takes the scroll from the hand of the Father, began this partial judgment at his ascension, and he will finalize it and consummate the whole thing when he returns. Are you still with me? Look at Luke 21 again, from which Aaron read this morning. Actually, I have it on the screen. In in chapter 21, here's the Lord. Now, he's standing outside of the glorious temple and all these beautiful buildings that surround it, and he says, most assuredly, I say to you, not one stone will be left upon another. That, as I said, will be unconceivable to a Jew. And they asked him, teacher, when will these things be? What will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, see that you are not led astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at what? At once. It will not be at once. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places, famines and pestilences, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. You jump to verse 20. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come. And if you know anything about church history and you read about the Jewish war from 67 to 70 AD, you'll know that there's never been anything more terrifying than what took place around that temple and how it was burned to the ground, and how Jews laid strewn about dead in the streets, and how many who were in Christ took warning and they head for the hills. That's where they went. They, verse 24, will fall by the edge of the sword. They will be led captive among all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles, and the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. When you get to verse 32, truly I say to you, this generation, meaning the generation with an earshot of the Lord's voice in that day, will not pass away until all this has taken place. And in 70 AD, beloved, they saw the Lord in the sky in judgment. That is apocalyptic terminology for judgment that comes from above. So the tragedy in Jerusalem prefigures, beloved, in miniature, the calamities and final judgment of the world. All of these things characterize life in these, the last days, the time between the first and the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The judgment, this judgment became evident as it was unleashed upon the Roman-ruled world of the first century, continues to this very day. People in Asia Minor witnessed this, beloved. What surrounded them. At the close of the Jewish war in 70 AD, Josephus writes this, that the number of Jews slain during the siege was 1,100,000. 11,000 perished from starvation. 97,000 were carried captive and sold into slavery. When we get to the 14th century, the bubonic plague killed 26 million people in six years. In World War II, over 60 million people were killed. Hitler, by the hand of this vicious man, 6 million Jews slaughtered. Stalin, 20 million people slaughtered. This is life, beloved, characterized by wars, bloodshed, famines, and death, and the grave. Then and now. How then are we to understand the four horsemen? Well, first again, we we must know that these are only precursors, beloved, to his final judgment. Precursors. These four horsemen were released 2,000 years ago at the ascension of Jesus Christ describing his providential judgment upon a Christ-rejecting world. But Christians are taken in war too. That's right, but they don't perish because they're under the blood. They suffer famine. That's right, but they don't perish because they're under the blood. You just get to go home early if you consider that early. And you wouldn't come back if you could. You wouldn't. You're not going to miss me, that's for sure. (laughs) 
You're not going to miss your spouse if the Lord takes you. But if you perish by way of famine or war or pestilence, you're forever lost and will suffer. That, that is only a taste, a taste of wrath. This is judgment of a Christ-rejecting world. So we, beloved, as Christians, we live in a time of overlap and delay, okay? As a Christian, we live in time, a time of overlap and, 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 and delay between the inauguration of the Lord Jesus Christ's kingdom, and what did he say? If I cast out demons, what is upon you? The kingdom is here. It came with Jesus the king. It came, beloved. He rules now. He's the king of the kingdom. And you are, chapter one, his kingdom, and you are his priests in that kingdom. It's just not yet fully consummated. So you're part of the already established but not yet consummated kingdom of the king, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. It's the kingdom. But at the same time, we suffer tribulation. Chapter one, John said, I am your brother in the kingdom and the tribulation. Overlap and delay. All authority, once again, what, how, what amount of authority has been given to the king of kings? All authority in heaven and on earth. Jesus rules everything from monarchs to microorganisms. Everything. Is anything out of his sovereign control? Nothing. Just say no. Nothing. <laughs> oh, Osama bin Laden. What was I? 9 11. What happened? Anything in history. Nero. You think Hitler was bad? Read Nero. You think Jesus was going, whoa, that Nero or that Hitler, that Stalin? No, never. Pilate said to Jesus, do you, not, you do not answer me? Do you not know I have the power to crucify you? Oh. <laughs> I'll paraphrase what Jesus meant by what he said. I'm not standing before you. You're standing before me. You'd have no power lest it had been given to you from my Father from above. No power. It was preordained you'd have the power to sentence me to death. Period. He's the king. Listen to what Dennis Johnson says. Again, who was the original recipient of this letter, beloved? The seven churches of Asia Minor. Again, it will not mean anything to us. It did not mean to them. It's not about the when and the how. It's about the why, amen? That's what Revelation is about, the why, not the when and the how. Johnson writes, Quote, the churches of Asia must realize that through his sovereignty over all things from rulers to bacteria, that's where I got the little mo monarchs and migrant organism, that wasn't my own, might think I'm brilliant. <laughs> I just ripped off a master, basically. From rulers to bacteria, Christ will send all sorts of limited providential judgments on the Roman imperial system, exposing the emptiness of its political military confidence and its religious pretensions, end quote, and amen to that. So these persecuted churches, beloved, were written in order to strengthen them in their weakness. At the same time, they're being uh, persecuted. And this reveals to them who's controlling all things. They don't have to stand and wonder. They will, man, I know Jesus resurrected from the dead. That's why we're gathered. That's why we're receiving persecution. When's it going to come to an end? Oh, he's in control, beloved. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. That which will occur between his first and second comings. Be faithful, he said, until the what? End. We live in between those two events. Between the first and second comings of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this is a period of delay of what is referred to, as I said, as the already but the not yet. You remember the Jews who looked forward to the coming of Messiah? They knew he was about to arrive. But they didn't see what we see as we look back. 
What they saw were prophecies of a Messiah who would indeed bring judgment upon his enemies along with salvation for his people. However, the mistake that they made is that they saw that as one singular cataclysmic and finalized event. That was their mistake. So the characterizing feature of this delay are these periodic and providential judgments of the Lamb. Where does it come from? From him. He's allowing it. He's ordering it. Symbolized by the four horsemen of the apocalypse. The four horsemen of the last days. Not ultimate judgment, but but limited in degree. Notice, do not harm the oil. Do not harm the wine. He'll go on to say, uh, they were given authority um, over a third of the inhabitants of the earth and a third of sea life. Not all of it. So these enacted judgments of Jesus Christ are for a time. They're limited and they're temporal. And this should encourage God's people. When we were brought up into heaven with a vision, that's the control tower of all that's happening to those seven churches who were suffering temptation, turmoil, and persecution. Remember? We can't, we can't disconnect everything that we've studied thus far. Like a big capsule. Sealed, locked and sealed. That's the revelation. So these judgments, while fulfilled in the lifetime of these Asia, Asia minor churches have also found their fulfillment over the last 2,000 years of history and will continue to be fulfilled until the very last day. After all, at this very moment, do nations long for military conquest, beloved? Yes, they do. It is inevitable. At this very moment, blood is shed from man by man. It is relentless. Turn on the news from your neighbors, throughout the state, throughout the nation, throughout the world. At this very moment, there is famine around the world. It is inescapable. At this very moment, pestilence is unparalleled through the AIDS virus alone. These are the four horsemen. Next time, what we'll see is that while these judgment, these judgments of the Lamb are showing themselves only in part, the blood of the saints in the midst of it all have been and are being and will be shed as they're faithful to the gospel. They continue to occur till the very end. Now what we must embrace this morning is the very thing that was to profoundly impact this church. It's the same thing that should profoundly impact your Christian walk, and that is the lamb who was slain, the lion of the tribe of Judah, has triumphed over sin, over death, over hell, and he's the one who controls everything, beloved. Everything. You trust the sovereignty of God? Do you believe in the sovereignty of God? He rules. He reigns. He's the only one worthy to take the scroll and open it. Therefore, he is the authority who's granted permission to the four horsemen. Then and now. So why all of these terrorist attacks? Why disease? Why starvation? You know, we might be prone to give answers that provide secondary causation answers. (laughs) But nevertheless, there's a primary cause to it all. So we must not think for a moment that hurricanes and holocausts or 9-11 or any kind of war is outside of the realm and reality and power of the one who's on the throne, and that is Jesus Christ. Secondary causation is simply a means to his end, beloved. What's our message to an unbelieving world? It's this. Repent or perish. That's the bad news. Repent from what? Yourself and your sin to the gospel, to Jesus Christ. Because you're going to die. Now, that's our message. You know, Jesus said something. It's very interesting. I'm going to wrap up with this here in a minute. There were some present when the Lord was teaching, and this is what they asked him. There were some present at that time 
who told him about the Galileans, imagine telling Jesus something, who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Here's a group of people coming to offer sacrifice, believer or not, who knows. There they are on the altar providing their sacrifice. Pilate comes with a sword and slashes and kills them and their blood is mingled with the sacrifice, with the offering. Jesus didn't wring his hands and he go, oh, terrible, sad thing. He said this. He answered, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No. I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will likewise perish. To believers, Jesus said in Luke 12, I tell you, my friend. Who are the friends of the Lord? Those bought at a great price. Do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are you glad that you're covered by the lamb? The blood of the lamb? So that you will never perish? Doesn't matter how you die, you will die. The Tower of Siloam or some other tower may fall on you as you're working construction. This is a construction job, crying out loud. Fall off a building. Car accident, you will die. But if you perish, that's another thing altogether. The only ones who will escape perishing are those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life, beloved. This is it. The Lamb's Book of Life. Because the wrath depicted here does not in any way compare to the wrath, the wrath that Jesus Christ himself bore on the cross in your place. If you think this is wrath, if you think that hell is wrath, Jesus suffered in three hours, six altogether, three where the Father turned his face from the Son. He suffered in three hours what it takes a sinner to suffer for eternity for you. You are his kingdom. You are his priests. You are citizens in heaven because he bore God's holy, righteous, indignant wrath in your place. And because he's victorious, he now unleashes wrath on an unbelieving world. Why is there war? Why is there pestilence? Why is there famine? Why is there death? And Hades follows death because the lamb is on the throne opening and releasing the content of the seals, the sealed scroll. Humanity consists of two groups of people, beloved. Two. The people of God marked by the lamb and the rebellious earth dwellers marked with the beast. No, that is not a microchip. (laughs) The mark of the beast is not the microchip. The mark of the lamb and the mark of unbelievers is symbolic terminology throughout the Bible that has to do with being of God or not of God. Sealed and saved or condemned and marked. Microchip. You talk about exegesis. You talk about trying to squeeze something into the text here. Nobody here believe that though, right? So now you want to ask me this as we close. Is the world going to get better or worse? Answer, yes. (laughs) What did Jesus say about the wheat and the tares? The wheat, God's people, the tares, the earth. Unbelievers, inhabitants of the earth, unbelievers. What did he say about the two? They will dwell together until when? Until the end. I'm going to be secretly removed? You don't believe in the rapture? Yes, I do. But it's like this in judgment. Those of us that are alive will be caught up with Christ, transformed in the twinkling of the eye, but he's still coming in judgment, and we stand with him in judgment of the inhabitants of the earth, great, great right throne, thrown into the lake of fire, a new heaven and new earth where we will rule and reign and glorify our lamb forever. Worthy is the lamb, we will say. That's it. 
Don't look for the Antichrist. Look for Christ. The horsemen have been released. This is the age of murder. But this is also the age of missions. There will be more war. There'll be more evangelism. There'll be more suffering, but there'll be more revival. There will be more persecution, but there will be more sinners saved by grace. It's the kingdom and the tribulation together until he comes back to consummate both. Eternal tribulation and an eternal new heaven and new earth. But why the delay then? Why the delay of his finalized retribution? Why the delay of the consummation of the kingdom? That will be for next time. Amen? When the scene shifts now from earth back to the throne, back to heaven where the altar is, where the saints in heaven who were slain for the word of God cry out and they ask, how long until you finally crush your enemies? Answer next week. Are you glad, rejoicing to be covered by the blood of the Lamb? So that when you do die, you won't perish. If you're not covered by the blood, I beseech you, I beg you, repent and believe. Embrace Jesus, who went to the cross after upholding the law, who laid down his life, lifted it up again, who rules and reigns now and has already opened the seals of the scroll. Repent or perish. Come to Christ. Don't play. Don't play Christian. Come to Christ. Father, we thank you for your wrath For without your wrath, there would not be a recipient of the wrath to stand in our place and become a substitute. Where your love was made manifest in the fullest sense, your son on Calvary's hill, to bear that wrath alone. Standing in the place of your church, your bride, laying his life down, taking it up again. And Lord, we know you rule and reign now. We see the calamities of this earth that are just a foretaste of those who do not believe. And we thank you that we, Lord, are delivered from such tragedy. We know, Lord, that believers die in wars and we know that believers die of famine, but we also know that we don't perish like unbelievers do. Lord, help us have fresh eyes to see the glorious truth of the revelation. Bless your people, Lord, I pray, in abundance. Bless their relationships with their family, husbands, wives, children, children to parents, parents to children, unbelieving friends. Lord, may we be a great witness of your grace and your goodness. When we're given opportunity to herald that truth, Lord, give us confidence. Give us a certain sense of of courage while at the same time remaining humble and compassionate to those that are currently perishing with the hope that they might be your elect chosen before the foundation of the earth, which we will find out when they're regenerated. Bless us, Lord, we pray, as we might grant you and give you the glory in return due to your name for all that you have done and do in our place. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.